what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. U.S. health advisors want you to know your health coverage does not have to be complicated. If you aren't happy with your insurance plan, there are unlimited and comprehensive medical plan options available to you right now. U.S. health advisors offer solutions which can't be found anywhere else. They can even offer you the ability to purchase more coverage if and when you need it. U.S. Health Advisors offers fair rates and no surprises. Sounds nice, doesn't it? If you'd like to know more, contact U.S. Health Advisors at 828-554-3032 or by email at daniel.bryant at ushadvisors.com. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.tv. My name is Alan Jackson, co-director and co-founder of the Foot Candle Film Society and Foot Candle Film Festival. With me, Chris Fry, the other co in that co-director, co-founder, of those same two organizations. Chris, how are you doing today? I am doing well. I'm looking forward to the oncoming holidays, which is always a good excuse to also watch a lot of movies. It is. And kind of on that note, too, just as a little quick plug before we move on to the show, we actually just finished recording a little bit ago our kind of crossover episode with the Entrepreneur Exchange podcast here on the TV. And the reason we go hop on that show every year is we help talk about holiday movies or movies you can enjoy over the holidays that maybe have some sort of business-related message or theme or lesson or something. So we do encourage you to maybe check out that podcast as it's going to be available about the same time as this episode you're listening to right now. It's kind of a tradition. We've been doing it for like four or five years now, so it's been pretty fun. But let's get to the here and now. These are still films we're going to be talking about today that maybe you might want to enjoy over the holidays as they're going in. Uh, One in particular we're going to be actually doing a full review of, and that is the latest film from the Safdie brothers, that's Benny and Josh Safdie, starring Adam Sandler. It is Uncut Gems. Following that review, we'll be talking through some movie news. We have a few news items to share and discuss. Then we also are going to explore a couple of trailers in our Trailers Tapas segment of the show, where we kind of talk about some trailers that have been released and maybe some interesting film projects coming down the way. Uh, I have a little bit of a rant soapbox item to hop on. Uh, we kind of have been taking our turns with the soapbox the last couple episodes, so it's my time to hop on there now. And then we'll end up the show with each of us giving a recommendation of a film that we think might be worth checking out there again, especially during the upcoming holidays. So, Chris, we got a full show. You ready to get started with our primary review of uh, the film Uncut Gems? Absolutely. All right, here we go. Uncut Gems, directed by Benny and Josh Safty. <laughs> How's it going? How's it going? Hey, how are you? Good to pay soccer. All right, Larry, you're a Jew again. Welcome back. I made a crazy risk to gamble. Brother directing duo Josh and Benny Safty partnered with Robert Pattinson for their critical breakthrough 2017's crime drama, Good Time. For their latest film, Uncut Gems, they've chosen Adam Sandler as their muse to tell a story of a New York City jeweler 
always on the lookout for the next big score. Dramatic turns for Sandler tend to garner more critical praise for him. His comedic roles offer more of a mixed bag. How does this Sandler performance work for you, Alan? And how did your first cinematic outing with the Safdie brothers fare? Um, Well, two different questions with two very different answers for me. Um, Let me tackle the film first, if it's okay. Then I'll circle back to Sandler. Okay. Um, As a film, my first experience, yes, I I have not seen Good Time, uh, but I've heard you speak of it. And I've been anxious to see it. So unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to catch up with it before seeing Uncut Gems. So I have nothing really compared against. Sure. However, I will say, I enjoy might, might might not be the right word for the film, but I appreciated the film and found a lot from it to keep me interested and to make it worthwhile for watching. Uh, there are some challenges in the film. There are some things that are. I mean, I'll say it's a grueling experience watching this film. Um, the best way I can explain it is take the Layla sequence from Goodfellas, which is about two thirds of the way through the film as things are really starting to go bed downhill for the main characters in Goodfellas. And it's all played over the piano part of Layla from Derek and the dominoes. And it's just tension and fast paced and moving and a lot of uh, just, just nervous energy. Well, that's this film over two hours. Um, it's like taking that sequence and just extending that for a two-hour, 15-minute runtime. So it is a grueling experience. Uh, I I guess I'll say I enjoyed the film, although enjoying is a tough word for it. Uh, it was a, a worthwhile experience for me. However, to your first question, asking about Adam Sandler, I know he's getting a lot of acclaim for his performance in this film. I actually didn't think it was that great a performance for Adam Sandler in terms of a dramatic performance. I actually liked him a lot more in the Meyerowitz stories that we reviewed last year from Noah Baumbach on Netflix. And I liked him, of course, years ago in Punch But Drunk Love with Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, Here, I feel like Adam Sandler is just playing a very, very extremely heightened version of one of his more manic comedic roles where he has to play very angry and loud and frantic and also smarmy at the same time. He does that really well, (laughs) but... His performance is not the thing that stood out for me in this film or a reason I say I like this film. I thought he was serviceable in the film, but I don't think he was really – I don't think it was one of his best dramatic performances, if that makes any difference there. Sure. But overall, I did like the film. Um, I generally like films that even if they're not as heavy on story and plot but are more about building mood and tension and driving energy and moving emotion forward – I like all that. And that was two hours and 15 minutes of this from pretty much the opening sequence all the way through the end. So I really like that constant motion and the constant activity and the constant dread and fear that was also in place too. So it worked for me. Um, I did like it. But I'm going to kind of turn back on you, Chris. So you and I watched this as a screen together. Mm -hmm. I think I heard an exhale from you at the end of the film. So tell me, was that an exhale of release because of all the pace and tension and dramatic buildup of the film, or was it an exhale, exhale of relief that it was finally over and this grueling process was done? We're about to enter, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, a lot of you know holiday time where you spend a lot of time with family. And unfortunately, sometimes you might end up in a situation where there's a disagreement and people may start, you know, shouting or yelling at one another. And you, you are we going to have our own Safety Brothers you, version of a podcast? And you hope <laughs> that those instances don't last two hours and fifteen minutes because that's kind of an unpleasant way to spend two hours and fifteen minutes. Um, 
Yeah, for the, there was a lot of screaming, a lot of frantic camera work. They just ended up exhausting me. Um, they weren't showing me anything new. It wasn't being presented in an interesting manner for me. Um, you follow Howard, who is uh, Sandler's character, on a series of bad decisions that just become repetitive and uninteresting. And it's not entertainment, but punishment for me. And it was, <laughs> but you did it did achieve the stressful thing that you're talking about because of regardless of, you know, whether you like the guy or don't like him, which I don't think many people are going to say, Oh, I liked Howard. He was an admirable person, but the Safdie brothers do a good job of creating tension through camera angles and loud music. And the, I feel like every line of dialogue was probably written in all caps because everybody was shouting like the entire time. Um, so, you know, they, they do a good job in creating tension, but it just, the result of it wasn't something that ended up interesting me. And so it just kind of, kind of bored me. So kind of bored. See, boring is not a word I would use to describe this, but I can understand. I I see your point. I see where you're coming from. Um, yes. Did the story end up really, you know, did it give you as much story as I probably would have liked? And I think it was the film even tried to hint on some themes and ideas that, it took a very, very cursory view of and didn't really explore very far. Would I have liked to have seen more of that? Yes. Would I have liked to have gotten a little more understanding the story about some elements? Uh, absolutely. Could I have done with a little less shouting? Sure, I could have. <laughs> but it was a part of it. It was it was it was building a, a a tension and a mood and a pace that was relentless. And I think you know the shouting and the yelling and the loud noises kind of helped to build to that. So. Overall, it worked for me, but I can see how it is a grueling experience. It's not one I'd necessarily wish on anybody to go and sit through. Well, and I think, you know, you'd mentioned that I'd seen Good Time, which I had, and I like that film, uh, unfortunately, more than I like this film. But I will say, considering the subject matter of crime in both and um, kind of trying to create like a thriller aspect, um, I was surprised, and you mentioned a little bit about the start of the film, mm-hmm. and I was surprised where this film started. Um, it was at a gym mine in Africa, and that was kind of jarring to me because I didn't expect it to start there. And then flowing into what I'll describe as a very 2001 Space Odyssey Stargate sequence with an aesthetic that's very memorable, has a Moog score that added to the like Kubrickian feel of it. But it's the credit sequence that kind of got, and then you eventually do get to Adam Sandler. Um, but kind of that was, it was a very unique and interesting way to open the film and not what I was expecting from the Safdie brothers. And very obviously it was a vision they had. And that idea comes back as kind of a bookend at the end of the movie. I won't get into spoilers as to how it does. But that to me, it does gave me something to appreciate about the film. And there wasn't a lot of yelling in those parts either. So mm-hmm. that was also nice. Yeah. I was going to say the journey through the gym is what they yeah, refer to it. The gym. Those sequences I thought were pretty interesting and added a little more to this film than just a, let's watch a guy make some horrible decisions and get deeper and deeper into debt and, and, and danger for he and his family, you know, they added some element to it that I wish the film had gone a little deeper with, but I think the little bit they gave us was still better than what I've seen, what you see in a lot of run-of-the-mill kind of crime or uh, drama pieces like this. Um, one element of the film I thought was really interesting I want to ask you about. So the film utilizes a couple of real people, like okay. real celebrities. I know where you're going with Kevin this. Garnett uh, with the Celtics playing, and he's a, a prominent person in the film, a mm-hmm. kind of a – Key point of the plot. Yes. 
Then you also have The weekend, the performer who plays a small part, but it is kind of integral to one particular scene that causes a little bit of friction between uh, Howard Ratner, the Adam Sandler character, and his then-girlfriend, Julia, mm-hmm. played by Julia Fox, that we'll get to in a moment as well. Um, these two individuals playing themselves, but also playing themselves as not the best people. I mean, you know, that's the thing. They weren't afraid, and the, right. the roles kind of required them to be a little of debasing themselves. Kevin Garnett comes across as uh, maybe a little egotistical, you know, he, a decision he makes with a particular object of Harold's uh, or Howard's kind of sets a lot of the the, the plot in motion. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a selfish mood. The weekend does something kind of, you know, not anything uh, he ever wants to be a role model for, you know, to kind of set another plot line in motion. So it's there again. It's, it's I thought it was interesting and a little daring to say, hey, you know what? Take Let's take some big celebrities. And, yeah, you're going to kind of play yourself as kind of a, a jerk or kind of a, a despicable person in some scenes. And that's just the way the film's going to go. Sure. And they still chose to do that. So do you have any reaction to kind of that? No, I, I, I knew because if you've watched the trailer and we just played a little bit of it um, audio-wise, but you know that Kevin Garnett's going to be in it. Um, I was surprised how much he was in it and how how good I thought he was. I mean, you know, he's playing a basketball player, but he does a good job at that. But And then just, you know, delivering lines, he was good. Um, the weekend, I didn't know anything about him being in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because the film takes place a few years back, I think like 2012, because Kevin Garnett's retired now. He doesn't, right. but, you know, obviously he was on the Celtics then and, it's the weekend earlier on in his career where he was probably doing a lot of club shows. But yeah, that, that kind of added layer of semi-reality for the story was surprising. And uh, I, th- I did like that element. There was one line that I guess if you're trying to find a through line for the film that I don't feel like they you know, pretty much lived up to, but it was a delivery of Kevin Garnett to Adam Sandler when they're having this conversation and he has shown him this precious gem thing that has come over from Africa as a result of what you see in the opening credits. And he shows it to Garnett and you can tell Garnett's just like flipping out about it. But then Adam Sandler pulls it back and it's like, sorry, you know, this, we're doing this for auction. You can't have it. And Kevin Garnett just kind of locks eyes with him. And he says, why did you show me something I can't have? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of interesting. You know, it's kind of one of those themes that's in the movie. And there, he, Kevin Garnett also mentions a little bit about, you know, who are you? Where did this come from? This, you know, these people probably made no money. You're taking advantage. Now you're going to charge me this. Or you're doing it for auction. Like, it's kind of like, what's your angle is mm-hmm. all that. So there were some threads that were thrown out there, but I just, you know, could have been pulled a little tighter and woven together better. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they were there. So mm-hmm. that did help me appreciate it. Uh, you mentioned the music yes. early on, and I thought the music was interesting throughout the film. It was a almost like a synth pop kind of a little synthesizer heavy, a little bit of an eighties vibe, even though this was supposed to be set taking place in 2012. So it right. wasn't really trying to match any kind of time period. Uh, just an odd eclectic use of music and, and instrumentation throughout. Although I will say, um, it's probably one of the best uses of the Billy Joel song, the stranger, the stranger. Yeah. that I've ever heard used, which was great. So, um, so I liked the music. It was both unnerving at times and also oddly, uh, matching what was going on the screen at others. So I'll say to you that I think if I could see how for those that have lived in New York city or do you live in New York city now or have a big affinity for the city, 
this has a very authentic feel of New York City. I think you can tell the Safdie brothers are very familiar with locations. And, you know, it just does a very good job to, to, to me of capturing kind of New York City location mm-hmm. shooting, referencing you know, different things about New York everywhere. There's a scene where Howard brings in cupcakes from Magnolia Bakery. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that was originally talked about, I think, in Sex of the City or something. But it's like you're all these very New York things, kind of the diamond district that he walks through with all the different vendors. And, the, you know, it just it comes across as very authentic and very mm-hmm. like real world. So I'll, I'll give the Safdies credit for that. Um, I will also say for me, the last 20 minutes of the film all center around a basketball game being played. Oh yes. Okay. And I will say it's probably some of the most tense filmmaking I've seen in a little while. Um, it rivals some of the greater dramatic uh, build tension building scenes that you're used to. I mean, you're dealing with betting, and trying to hit a certain score, and you're watching a game, and there's several parties involved from all different locations, all invested in where this game's going, and it built itself up really, really, really well. I mean, I was genuinely fixated and nervous and stressful during that, which, I mean, is what you want to be when you're watching the movie here. Sure. Um, and then, of course, it ends with a very crescendo that I think, again, caps it off really well. So I, I really appreciated the last... 20, 30 minutes of this film, probably more than the, the previous 90 minutes I saw. I liked it all, but I think that last 30 minutes really made it for me, really kind of brought it all together. Um, adding in just enough unique, interesting characters along the way. There were some characters brought in. Some I, we're trying to figure out if they're, they were real people or some were acted. We don't really know. And I think that's kind of fun about it as well. Um, we, we mentioned Adam Sandler, uh, you know, Lakeith Stanfield's also in the film. Yes. Smaller part. I, I felt like maybe a little underused. We kind of lose him halfway through the film. He's kind of gone for a, a good part of it. Agreed. Which is a shame because I, I really like him on screen. Uh, but the two performances I thought were probably the best. I, I didn't, I don't, I thought Adam Sandler was serviceable, but could have been better. Uh, Julia Fox playing Julia, his girlfriend, I thought, this is the first thing she's ever done, as far as I can tell. IMDb. Okay. I, she's had two little small parts in other movies, but this is the first real movie part she's had. <laughs> I thought she was really good. She yeah. had a great presence on screen. And then Adina Menzel as his wife, Dina, I also thought was really good. She had a few, yeah, two or three really uh, great scenes to, to act in, and uh, um, I, I liked her role quite a bit. Yeah, and with, with Frozen 2 coming out, it's just fun to see her in a very non-Frozen oh, role. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Couldn't think of anything much more opposite just, than Frozen than sure. this movie. Um, so I did like both those performances. I thought overall performances were good across the board, but those two really stood out. And uh, and again, with Adam Sandler, it's not that I'm saying he was bad in this. It's just I really, I think between Meyerowitz stories and Punch Drunk Love – I just I know he's capable of a little more acting, and this one I think still veered more towards his angry, loud man persona that he used a lot more in his comedies. I think he got to just really crank it up to twelve on this one. So, yeah. My only real dislike with the film, I, it's just it's just tough to watch a character make so many bad decisions <laughs> that right. you know are jeopardizing him and his family and everybody else around him. It's, it's a painful film to watch. I will say that it is painful. It's not for everybody. Not a film. I think everybody would appreciate or look to have a good time with. It is a, it is a fairly grueling and exhausting film to watch. 
Uh, and also difficult to watch at times, too. And what do you know? It's apparently releasing on uh, Christmas Day. So what better Perfect way? Christmas than, movie. Right. So, yeah. Uh, anything else? Any other thoughts you have, likes, dislikes, uh, concerns, questions? I mean, I just kind of, you know, in summary, the, the title Uncut Gems, it just ultimately reflects my thoughts on the film. There's some interesting material, gems such as race and how it plays in the harvesting of precious Minerals, America's obsession with fame, a look at addiction and gambling through Howard's character. But ultimately, I was just left with something that felt unfinished or uncut. Nice. Very, very nicely done. I, on the other hand, enjoyed the experience. I had fun with it. Uh, I was kind of enraptured the whole time. I don't mind movies that keep me on uh, high alert the entire uh, running time, and this one certainly did. I was more in, intrigued by the real-life performances of some real celebrities in the film. And then where the Safety brothers were trying to go with a few messages, especially with regards to the importance of the gym and the history of the gym, there were some interesting notes tossed in there. I, I wouldn't have minded those getting fleshed out a little bit more in the film, but that's not the direction they were choosing to go. They wanted to tell more of the story of Howard and the impact all of this is having on him. And for that side of it, I think it was well done. Um, could have been really interesting if they explored a few of those areas a little more, though. So that is Uncut Gems. And as Chris mentioned, uh, coming out, Merry Christmas on uh, <laughs> December 25th. And uh, don't know what kind of wide release or limited release schedule it's going to be for this. Uh, we'll definitely be kind of curious to see how much play it gets. It's going to be a tough. It's going to be a tough sell for a lot of audiences. Yeah. I found enough rewarding in it to to recommend it. Chris sounded like he's not really so keen to do that. Well, Chris, we're going to jump right away from reviews. That was our one review we do for the show because we got a lot of other stuff we want to carry and talk okay. about in the rest of the show. So let's go ahead and do a few things before we go to any kind of break. Let's go ahead and do some of our news items here because I'd love to get some thoughts and foster some discussion. So this is the section of the show where Chris and I will have some highlights of news from the movie-making world that we want to share with one another and just get some reactions and talk through our, uh, what we're getting from, from that information. So, Chris, I've got one news item I want to start us off with, which I personally have a real interest in in, in discussing a little bit with you. So, um, this is from Variety, so I just want to credit the source of the the story. All right. Netflix has announced that it is going to be keeping the New York City's Paris Theater open through a lease agreement. So, let me kind of back this up a little bit. There is a theater in New York City called the Paris Theater. It is one of the only remaining single-screen theaters... Actually, I think it's the only remaining one left in the in uh, New York City. Okay, it's one of the oldest uh, art house movies in the United States. The last single screen theater in New York. Wow. Well, it shut down earlier this year. Yeah, I thought I remember hearing that it was yeah. like kind of a passing that it had gone. It away. did it shut down, uh, but it got reopened this month for a particular movie that I know you and I are a super big fan of, Marriage Story. Oh, uh, it got opened back up for Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story to play uh, this month. During that time, Netflix has now announced, just announced this week, that they have a lease agreement to keep the theater open. The streaming giant is going to be using the theater for events, screenings, theatrical releases of its films. That seems like a very smart and savvy business move for them. I agree. Uh, You get a couple benefits out of it if you're Netflix. A, um, you get to kind of get the nice reputation of keeping a classic old theater open and keeping it open for audiences. And it's like a counter argument against all the people complaining about streaming services taking away from yeah. the theatrical experience. It's you can you can uh, make the comment that you know um, 
yeah, you can make the comment now that, uh, hey, Netflix now has a, its own portal of places mm-hmm. to show films, so don't have to worry about that. You can try to build a little bit of a reputation that with Netflix getting so many high-quality films right now, hey, there's a theater in New York that we know is probably going to be playing one of their films, and we can go see it there. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a win-win for all those. I mean, anybody who wants to say that it's bad that Netflix is getting a movie theater business, well, my take on it is that was a movie theater that was not going to be open right, right now, and now it is. And people can go and watch movies together and in a community, and that's pretty cool. And that's kind of the weak spot for you and I. Like we both tear up when we hear about you know old theaters closing down, and we're like, oh, you know. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. yeah, that they could save this one, and hopefully they'll keep it kind of looking like it has throughout the years. Hopefully, I guess like original and stuff. So yeah. that's that's really cool. Well, and this is actually their second venture into an exhibition theater space. Oh, really? They okay. actually have been in talks since April to buy the historic Egyptian theater in Hollywood. Okay, so that makes sense, one on each coast then. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, just a little bit, the Paris Theater, it actually back, opened back in 1948. Wow. Uh, Mar- Marlene Dietrich actually cut the ribbon for it. I mean, it's a lot of history to it. So I'm really happy that they were able to keep this film, the, this theater going. It you know, makes me, did. even though I've already seen Marriage Story because we reviewed it, it makes me want to go to New York and see it there. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would have been really <laughs> nice. Cool. So anyway, I just thought that was a, kind of a nice story to hear. And, you know, people, like you said, people kind of want to bash on Netflix a little bit or maybe try to make Netflix out to be the villain of, uh, of um, you know, theatrical distribution or exhibition. But here is a situation where they're actually, you know, trying to, Trying to do the right thing with it. So I thought that was great. <laughs> and granted, of course, there's a business opportunity for Netflix. Oh, they're of not, course. They're not just doing this out of kindness of their heart. <laughs> but we as the patrons are recipients Wait, of Wait, you mean their... it's not just free to walk up right. there and see me? Oh, exactly. man. Exactly. Yeah. Um, let me bring you up another one here. And, okay, I'm going to cheat just a little bit. Okay. And that this is not directly about a movie. Hmm. But okay. it is about a filmmaker. Okay. That you and I both like. Okay. Okay. Um, Yorgos Lanthimos. Oh, yeah. You remember him? I do. I have not heard about him recently. Since The Favorite. The Favorite was the last film he did, Mm -hmm. 2018. Of course, it got nominated like for 10 different awards. Olivia Coleman. Olivia Coleman, right? So they have announced kind of what his next project is. Oh, good. It's not a film. It's not a movie. (laughs) It's not a movie. So I'm a little cheating here. It's an ad campaign for McDonald's. Yes. It is is a new McDonald's campaign. Awesome. Uh, for the McRib. <laughs> <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be amazing. Um, no, it is going to be a series, a limited series. Okay. Based on a best-selling nonfiction book, and it's, the book is titled The Man in the Rockefeller Suit, The Astonishing Rise and Spectacular Fall of a Serial Imposter. Hmm. So, and again, this comes from uh, birthmoviesdeath.com, their website, where they, where they uh, announced this. It's an imposter tale, one that tells the story of a Clark Rockefeller uh, who plays himself off as a successful and mysterious descendant of the Rockefeller clan. Uh, his wife, Sandra, begins to think that maybe he's not who he really says he is, and his decades-long web of deception slowly begins to unravel. So it's supposed to be a series Hmm. Um, it has not been officially picked up by a distribution place yet. I think it's being shopped around. But Chris, you know, We're you're a big fan like of young, Netflix, you're a big fan of uh, uh, Lanthimos. We yeah. we've liked his last several films. Have any intrigue for you? Him shifting into a adaptation of a more of a real life novel as a series. I mean, you know, for a creative person, however they think their story is best going to be told, my only lamentation is that. 
I may have to sign up for another streaming service to see it. Um, <laughs> it's so, going to be on yourghosttv.com. Yeah, right. <laughs> or Disney Plus. I'm sure they're after Right, Disney Plus. That sounds uh, exactly up their alley. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, you know, I think creative individuals sometimes feel that they are, you know, hemmed in by having to make a two-hour movie or a two-and-a-half-hour movie. Not Martin Scorsese. He makes it three-and-a-half and sticks it on Netflix. Mm-hmm. But, you know... No, I mean, I, I hope he continues to do film work because I think, you know, obviously he's very talented. But sure, give a, give a series a whirl. If it, and it's important, too, I guess, that you, know, you mentioned it's a limited series. Yeah. So he's like, okay, I'm going to give myself six episodes to tell this, but then I'm going to move on and maybe do a movie. Again. Hopefully limited so, does truly mean limited. limited like, right? it, maybe it's just a matter of I don't feel like I can tell this whole story with justice in just two hours. Sure. So I'd rather have eight hours and give me six episodes or whatever to do it. Right. I hope that's the case. So we will certainly see. Uh, again, has not been officially picked up for distribution anywhere. I think it's still early production. But hopefully we'll hear some good news about that soon. That's cool. My last news item, Chris, and it is, it's, a, it's a film we've brought up and talked about. Even, I think, in the last episode, we, we might have watched a trailer for this. And it's honestly, at this point, it is a quest for lowering our expectations. Oh. It is the latest Star Wars film. Okay. Um, you and I are big Star Wars fans. Anybody who knows this show knows that. But you and I have both expressed some level of concern yeah. about Episode Nine, which is releasing next month. A um, couple news stories in the last week haven't really done a lot to help raise oh, those expectations. Oh no. <laughs> See, I haven't, I haven't heard any of these stories. So the, oh, well, okay. it's just, it just sounds like, unfortunately, it just sounds like the news. I, and I don't know if it's just. So crit- are people starting to see it now or no? No, no nobody's this is just, seen it. Okay. It's just the news surrounding it. I think it's just if you were already a fanboy, very, very worried about this film, <laughs> these stories are not doing anything to help allay those concerns at oh, all. Oh, dear. So supposedly, and this is from um, uh, this is from flickeringmyth.com, a website, has reported that George Lucas talked with J.J. Abrams ahead of The Rise of Skywalker. Supposedly, George Lucas has been consulting with J.J. Abrams hmm. because... Some things I've heard and understood is that maybe there were enough concerns about how the storytelling was changed with The Last Jedi that they're feeling a little more need to bring the godfather, George Lucas, back oh, in to help no. steer the ship a little bit. Because he did such a great job with the prequels. Well, and that's my big concern because I like the direction they were going with Last Jedi. I'm yeah. a little worried that maybe they're trying to do some form of course correcting in their books with this last one. Mm. But the thing that part of this story that kind of bugged me the most is if I asked you in the prequel trilogy of Star Wars, what's one element of the prequels? One aspect, one idea they introduced in the prequels that were not in the original trilogy, that was a really, really bad thing. Oh. <laughs> Metachlorians. There you go. Bingo. I didn't even have to give you a hint on it. Oh. There is a quote in this, truly, where J.J. Abrams is saying that, yeah, George Lucas talked with him about midichlorians and how he loves the midichlorians and it's still a very helpful thing and, you know... Uh, not acknowledging whether he was going to weave that back into the story or not for this last one, but at least acknowledging that, yes, it came up quite a bit in conversations when getting Did consulting from George Did talk a lot about Lucas. Jar Jar Binks, too? I don't think Jar Jar Binks yeah. was mentioned at all. Okay. But I guess, you know, people are so split on George Lucas. Uh, I think real fans of the series, they love what George did in the originals. They love the vision he had, but they realize he's not the best director 
for making these things happen. And right. they didn't work crazy about where his story ideas were going in the prequels. So I think right now everybody just wants something fresh and new. I feel like that's what we got in Last Jedi a little more. And that's what I like so much about it. Everything I'm still hearing right now is that this is going to be a return to the formula. And, yeah, that's not what I'm really hoping for. Hmm. Well, another story in the Star Wars camp, unfortunately, too. This one doesn't really affect, you know, the how successful the film's going to be. But it's almost like just a comedy of errors around the film a little bit now. J.J. Abrams recently revealed that the real script for Star Wars Rise of Skywalker ended up on eBay somehow. <laughs> so people can now buy what? the real script. Yeah. Um, the movie comes out December 20th, but some fans are going to get to read it early. Um, he just said that one of their actors, he won't say which one, left it under their bed. It was found by somebody who was cleaning the place, and now it's on eBay. So this, he's isn't, this, this isn't a joke. He's, he says it's the real script. Now, could this be J.J. Abrams' misdirection? It's possible. It's very possible. Uh, I don't know, but a Disney employee spotted the first sale item before anyone could get their hands on it and got it back before it sold, supposedly. Oh, okay. okay. But it got out there. And, you know, it, the idea, if anything gets out in the ether with the internet, you know, there's no telling if it's gotten out there for the public to view or not. Anyway, just huh. again, a little comedy of errors thing around this. This film, <laughs> I want it to be good. I so want it to be good, but I am so, so worried about it right now. Oh, yeah. Well, low expectations. That's a good... We are it's definitely doing our job with trying to lower the expectations for this film however we possibly can. So, Chris, that's kind of the new section I've got on that. So I think some interesting projects coming up that we want to kind of keep our eyes on. And I'm very happy about the Paris Theater reopening just because, like you, I love seeing old theaters get put back to use. Chris, how about we take a break? And when we come back, we've got our trailer tapas section where we're going to play a couple trailers for you and comment on them afterwards. And then we're also going to end up with our recommendations. Oh, and my soapbox also thrown in for a few minutes for good measure as well. So stay tuned. You're listening to Foot Candle Films here on The Mesh. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Moose from Street Circle Drive. That's the Hickory, North Carolina-centric podcast here on The Mesh. Be sure to check out our show and all the others at themesh.tv. Welcome back to themesh.tv and Foot Candle Films. We are uh, happy to be on The Mesh Network it is a podcast network where we have a lot of variety of shows. A couple of things I want to make you aware of as you're listening to this. Podcast advertising is kind of hot right now when it comes to advertising and sponsorship. So we want to make sure you know that the mesh.tv is a great area for looking at possibly broadening out your own message, reaching a targeted audience. Uh, for example, people who listen to Foot Candle Films are going to be film people and media people and people watching st- content. Could be a good advertising option for you there. Plus, it's relatively low cost as a podcast format uh, allows itself to be uh, lower cost per impression of person listening to it. So do recommend that if you're interested in being a partner with The Mesh, advertising or supporting any of the shows, uh, please find us online at themesh.tv. That's T-H-E-M-E-S-H dot TV. And then you can go to the backslash advertise or just go to themesh.tv and find the advertising button on on the front page. And contact us, and we'd love to talk with you about opportunities for that. And, of course, Foot Candle Films has been on the Mesh Network for years now, so you can actually go on our website at themesh.tv, find Foot Candle Films, and find all back episodes. If there's any films you're anxious to hear a discussion about that you've seen, you can go back and search and find that episode 
download it. It's all for free. Podcasting is a free support, a free medium right now. So we uh, we'd love to have you check us out a little bit more if you have the time or interest. All right, Chris, let's go ahead and jump back into our show. So the first half of the show, we talked about a review of the film Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler. We were both split on that. I enjoyed it, liked it, had a lot uh, I pulled from it. You were felt just bombarded and didn't <laughs> feel like it really rewarded itself for anything worthy of a second viewing for any reason. So, and then we also talked about some news items. We talked about Star Wars. We talked about Yorgos Lanthimos, and we talked about the uh, Paris Theater in New York. This is the part of the show, though, where we go into what we call our trailers tapas. And I wish we had a little theme song for that. We hmm. need something to come up with on that. I have to work on that. This is where we take trailers, which are great. Kind of you see trailers as little tapas anyway. It's like little morsels of something to kind of whet your appetite for other things, or you can enjoy them as a full meal. Sometimes I will watch trailers as like a full meal. I'll watch an hour of trailers, and to me that's a great cinematic experience sometimes. As long as you don't use it to spoil yourself too much about the there film. There you go. Here, I'm going to play. We're going to talk about a couple of trailers. I don't think either of these are ones we would consider spoiler trailers at all. They're not really meant to give away any secrets from the films. They're really meant to build some enthusiasm for them. The first one, and we're just going to go ahead and play the trailer if it's okay. I'll give a quick little intro to it and then play it, and then you and I can discuss it some. It is a film by Jay Roach, who you may know as having been a comedy director in the past, but now he's kind of shifted his attention more to political films and political comedies. He did the film Game Change for HBO, which was all about the um, John McCain, Sarah Palin uh, decision to bring Sarah Palin on as vice president back in the 2012 election? I think 2000 or 2008. 2008. Okay. And that was a great film. Got a lot of awards for for uh, it for it. So he's been moving on doing some other creative work. This one is the film starring. Uh, we've got Charlize Theron, Margot Robbie, and Kate McKinnon. The film is titled Bombshell, and it's all about the Fox News media empire. So let's go ahead and play that trailer, and we'll talk about it here in a couple minutes after it's done. You have to adopt the mentality of an Irish street cop. The world is a bad place. People are lazy morons. Minorities are criminals. Sex is sick but interesting. Ask yourself what would scare my grandmother or piss off my grandfather. And that's a Fox story. Oh, it makes so much sense. Women are everywhere. We're letting them play golf and tennis now. HR's on the phone because you called me a skirt. Yeah, Yeah. I gotta read that manual again. (laughs) The attitude off camera was even worse. You're a man hater. Learn to get along with the boys. You're sexy, but you're too much work. I have a whole list. Will other women come forward? You may have heard there was a dust-up involving yours truly and presidential contender Donald Trump. There was blood coming out of her eyes, blood coming out of her wherever. Oh, my God. Did he just accuse me of anger menstruating? Wait, am I going to be the story? No. No. I'm going to be the story. No. Nobody stops watching because of a conflict. They stop watching when there isn't one. I want to convince you that I belong on air, Mr. Ailes. I think I'd be freaking phenomenal on your network. I could pluck you out and move you to the front of the line. But I need to know that you're loyal. I need you to find a way to prove it. I'm the bad guy. You know why Ron just got that door blocking his office. Someone has to speak. 
speak up, someone has to get mad. Fox News star Gretchen Carlson dropped a major bombshell today. What is she doing? This could kill Fox News. We need everyone on Team Roger. Get it on. Put it on. These are the end times. You do understand I have to be above this, right? You know the entire country is talking about your period right now. Sweetheart, this is an island of safety and truth. It's a man! Ready to go to war? Oh, yeah. So, Chris, that is Bombshell. Again, we've got uh, Charlize Theron playing uh, Megyn Kelly. We've got Nicole Kidman playing Gretchen Carlson. Margot Robbie, I don't think, is playing anybody real. I think it's more of a fictional character to kind of play along with the story. And also Kate McKinnon at the beginning of the trailer there as well. Um, Also, i got to mention John Lithgow as Roger Ailes, which is almost unrecognizable until... Unless somebody told you that was John Lithgow, then you could see it in his face. But right. uh, what, what's your thoughts? We talked about this a long time ago. I mentioned it as a news item when a teaser trailer came out, commenting just not only visually how much Charlie Theron looked like Megyn Kelly with the way yeah. she was done up. It's crazy. But any other thoughts on the trailer since you've seen the new full one now? I mean, yeah, the the music's extremely well done. Um, you know, just how it shifts in the trailer and provides tension. Um, it's a it's a really really slick trailer. Um, I will be curious. Um, can this rise above just being simply obviously you know Fox News bombshell? You know we all know where this movie is coming from. Will it be something more than just like a hit piece, yeah. or is it going to provide some interesting some interesting background, some sort of like, you know, is it going to elevate itself above being just a, you know, oh yeah, look at what they're, you know, you just, will it provide something more than just an, uh, for people to say, I told you so. Type so thing? Am, are, are you asking, is it going to be more of a, the big short or is it going to be more of a, uh, a the Dick Cheney film? Uh, Vice. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, that is kind of what I'm asking. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. Because it it looks like it could just be nothing but a hit piece, which was Vice, which had some interesting aspects to it. Mm-hmm. But overall, you and I were not not a big fan, not positive on that one. So with this one, you know, you know, kind of the whole sexual harassment thing that happened with Fox News. That being said, why should I go to this movie? Well, it looks, it appears to have some good acting going on, and just the way the trailer was put together, it makes it look you know, fast paced and interesting and, you know, maybe slick and getting some perspective on things. Will that be the case? Who knows? Well, and I'm, I'm also curious too, because I mean, I think you've got three actresses in it, lead actresses that seem to all be kind of sharing a lead role. Yeah. And two of them playing real characters, real people, one not, but still those are three, uh, uh, fairly highly decorated, uh, actors of our generation that are all performing alongside each other in a very politically driven, controversial piece. It could be really interesting. Um, I'm always curious to see kind of how the, uh, any kind of awards and especially the Oscars recognize that kind of performance. If they're as good as the trailer makes it out like they are. Well, and kind of how you mentioned how the Oscars recognizes things, would it be something where, you know, possibly having three women, maybe all playing important roles, but kind of like supporting roles. So is it going to split stuff where it's like Margot Robbie versus Nicole Kidman and therefore neither one gets the nominee or neither one 
gets yeah. the Oscar because they kind of divert, Could you be. know. Things. I got the impression that I think the Gretchen Carlson and, and Megan Kelly maybe almost treat like more like supporting actresses and that the Margot Robbie I think is the I think we're supposed to get the impression she's the lead as far as like a lead character we're following throughout we kind the of, film. Yeah, she's kind of our guide yeah. through this whole thing. Right. So, anyway, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, you know, I like timely movies that are speaking the things happening around us right now. I like the portrayal of real people in a more fictional setting. I think it'd be kind of interesting to see. All right, let me show. This is a much shorter teaser. This is a teaser trailer. It's only a minute long. Okay. It's for a film called Antebellum. And I'm not going to tell you anything more about it. I just want to get your thoughts uh, about it afterwards. Antebellum, uh, directed by Gerard Bush and Christopher Rentz. Just going to leave it at that. Okay. So for those of, of course, this is an audio podcast, so I know <laughs> listening to a trailer may not be the most exciting. So let me try to visually describe. A couple of important visuals there to describe. Yeah, yeah sure. So uh, even though what you're hearing makes it sound very modern day, you're hearing 911 call and all. The visuals kind of are flip-flopping between uh, antebellum period, hence the name, I think, to some degree, with uh, looks like slaves working out in a field and maybe being chased or traumatized by some, some men. Yeah, dressed in uh, rebel or southern uniforms yeah, during so the Civil a little War, Civil type War type period, flipping to modern day, and we just got a lot of imagery. It seems to be around a hotel and kind of some odd characters showing up, and has a little bit of a horror vibe to it. But yet, the whole flapping, flipping back between the two time periods seems to be kind of an interesting conceit. It did mention that's from the creators of Get Out and Us. Now, this is not Jordan Peele, right? But it is other people involved in those those films. The directors, Gerard Bush and Christopher Rentz, um, they are more of uh, filmmakers for like campaigns and politically charged music videos and other kind of foundational work. This is, I think, the first maybe feature film they've done. They've made a lot of PSAs about brutal uh, police brutality. They've done, like I mentioned, politically charged videos for Jay-Z. They did videos for the MLK Memorial Foundation and Amnesty International. So they've got a lot of experience working in kind of more themes about, you know, uh, injustices and rising above those. This is obviously them making a feature film now. So you had not seen this teaser trailer yet. Initial thoughts. It definitely looks interesting. Um, And something that I appreciate about it is it looks like even though you could look at it one sense and say, oh, it's just, you know, it's going to be a thriller horror movie. But the fact that it's from the producers of Get Out and Us and you mentioned the background of the directors having, you know, 
experience in doing politically minded things or things with a message. So social issues. Social yeah. issues. It's not like they're just interested in, oh, let's just make a horror movie. It is what we talked about on the episode where we were mentioning like Midsummer and I forgot what we reviewed where we call oh, Lighthouse. Yeah, yeah the Lighthouse. Where we said it was like, you know, art house horror or mm-hmm. whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what this is going for. And yeah, I'm I mean and it looks extremely well shot. So uh well I'm interested. Janelle Monet is the oh, lead yeah. who I don't know of her being a lead in a film yet. I know she was in the Hidden Figures film as one of the mm-hmm. one of the supporting actresses there. She was in Moonlight, very good, but in a smaller role there. Uh, she's obviously a, a very talented musician in her own right and songwriter and performer. So to see her kind of as the lead in a film, I think she's a really good actress anyway. I really yeah, I enjoy everything I've seen her. Her in. name, there again, we're an audio podcast. Her name was the one that was mentioned in the teaser trailer. It's yep. just Janelle Monae. Yes, yeah, yeah. she's pretty much, it's her film. Yeah. Very, very curious to see where that goes. That one kind of came out of nowhere. I wasn't at all familiar with it. So uh, it, teaser trailer, you have done your job. I am officially <laughs> teased. <laughs> so exactly. That's great. So that's Bombshell and Antebellum, two trailers that have come out, or new trailers in the last couple of weeks. That we're saying, yeah, maybe something to kind of keep our eye on as we go forward. All right, Chris, I do want us to get to our recommendations, but before I do, I've just I've got my one little soapbox. And again, Excellent. this is another section of the show that we desperately need a little theme jingle for or something. Let me let but, me go get your box. I'll be right back. Okay. If you could go get the box, Chris is coming back with the box. Okay, dusting send, it off. Here you go. Down. Okay, I'm gonna step up on it. Here we are. I am at the top of my soapbox ready to go. So this is, you know, you and I are very invested in films and movies and the, the film business. So if something happens in the film business that bothers us or concerns us or rankles us, we want to stand up and talk about it. Sure. You did this with the Oscars last episode, talking about the foreign, foreign language, language right. hopefully being shifted to more international film for the better. Uh, and your concerns about some of the decisions they've made lately. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my soapbox this episode. You remember the actor James Dean? Yes. Okay. Familiar with him? I am familiar with him. Sadly, I have not seen a lot of his work, but I yeah. definitely, I mean, he's a cultural icon. So, yeah. Well, and unfortunately, he didn't have a huge body of work because he died young, unfortunately. He hasn't been alive for 64 years. Okay. Rebel so Without was, a Cause. Just before my time. Yeah. That's the film that I could have called out. Absolutely. So, Rebel Without a Cause, um, you know, it's kind of his big film that everybody knows him for, but he did die tragically young and career cut short. Um, well, surprise, he's been cast in a new film Okay, about the Vietnam War. There's an independent film right now under production called Finding Jack, and it will be using a computer-generated James Dean to play a co-storing role in the upcoming production. The digital Dean, and this is from Time Magazine's uh, and AP Wire, the digital James Dean is to be assembled through old footage and photos, and but yet voiced by another actor. What? Right. This just gets more like... Yeah, weird. so they don't have enough of the voice to construct a audio version of James Dean, but they've got enough photos and video to make a digital version of James Dean. Now, I will bring up to everybody, you know, this is not something new. Uh, I, I point us back to Rogue One, uh, the Star Wars spinoff film from a few couple years ago. Which I liked the film, yeah. but doing what you're talking about was one of the worst well, things. Well, there were two instances of yeah. this digital animation. One right. of them I did not think was bad. The Peter Cushing as as Tarkin, Tarkov, I actually thought was good. I mean, I actually thought it was kind of odd, scarily good how, how, how it looked. 
But then they also did one with Carrie Fisher at the end, which I thought was really not good. Did not look good at all. Granted, that was 2016. Technology moves quick. That was three years ago. Yeah, I mean, they've done... Actors were still there, but they did a lot of that in The Irishman. They de-aged right. them the de-aging. And de-aging is a it's little different. different in it's that different. You're, it's still an actor acting. Sure. You just are applying a different layer of makeup to them, basically. Yeah. Um, this is truly, that actor's not here. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> and we have to recreate the actor and put in somebody else's voice. I think if I was an actor, not to take away from your mm-hmm. soapbox, no, no. I, would, I would be really insulted that you thought the only way you could get this supporting role in a film was to do what you're doing. Like, really, there's no actor around that who could play could have, James Dean could have done this. I yeah. mean, he's not even he's not playing James Dean. He's just James Dean in a movie, right? He's not playing himself in the movie, correct? Well, I mean, or is he? He's playing James Dean, like his character's name. Like he's. Playing, I think he's supposed to be playing James. Like I think his he's oh. digitally recreated as a James Dean. Right, right. But what I'm saying is, like, in the movie, is he supposed to be the real-life James Dean, like, doing so? Or is it just... You know what? That, it's, actually not, makes, it's actually not clear about that. Okay, because I will say, not to take away from the soapbox, but if it's... Still, it's kind of stupid. But if, like... You know what? I think you're right. I don't... Maybe he's not playing... And Maybe it's James... They're bringing in a digital version of James Dean to play a character in the film. Which, if that's the case, that's dumb. If they're bringing... If they're bringing in a digital thing to be James Dean because they need James Dean in this yeah. film. You know what? Okay, I'm reading a little. I read another paragraph on this. I guess I just didn't put two and two together. They're adapting a novel called Finding Jack, a live action movie about the U.S. military's abandonment of canine units following the Vietnam War. Nothing to do with James Dean. Okay, so yeah, it's dumb. And James <laughs> Dean wasn't alive in the Vietnam War. <laughs> no, because I was almost alive. Well, 74. Yeah, yeah. So so basically, oh, okay, this, uh, this adds a little twist to the story then. No, so but to me, it's to not me, a digital recreation of James Dean to be James, James Dean in Dean. the movie. Right. It's, we want James Dean to be the actor in this film. He's dead. We're going to recreate him so we can have a James Dean-like actor That's, in this film. That, that, is, that is so dumb. Well... Chris either, Evans. I, either one would be dumb. Oh, Chris Evans, Mister Captain America. Yeah, he agrees with you. You and Chris, another Chris. <laughs> he would have been a great James Dean. <laughs> he says the uh, decision to do this was disrespectful and wrongheaded. Yeah. He quoted as saying, "Maybe we can get a computer to paint us a new Picasso or write a couple new John Lennon tunes." <laughs> the complete lack of understanding here is shameful. So. Okay, you know what? That puts a little different slant thinking about if he's just being brought in to be a digital actor Let's, playing a part as opposed to having a digital James Dean in them. I see Rogue One, you kind of get it a little bit because you, these do. are characters that have already been established for 30, 40 years. You want to show them again. You don't have the means to show them again right now. Because they have passed you away. redo so. them. But yeah, with this whole James Dean thing, there's no point to it. No. it, it Just yeah, get like a good it, actor. There's nobody around that could have done this. Yeah. And the thing is, it would still, you know, how do they do it before all this exists? Well, you just cast an actor that looks kind of like him and you let him do it. You know, like, let's say, so we, we said if it's, if it's a movie that's just not in his time period, then yeah, it's stupid. But I still think. If you're going, like, let's say they were telling a true Hollywood, it was like a biopic of somebody mm. who was good friends with James Dean. And for some reason, they want to digitally recreate James Dean. That I can kind of understand. But to me, why not just let an actor play him? Like, yeah. I still, I mean, maybe I'd give you a little bit more leeway if it was really important that for some reason it looked exactly like James Dean, but still stupid. Okay. Stone. I'm, I'm, I'm taking one foot off my soapbox. What? Just for a second. <laughs> let me just play devil's advocate on this. Okay. 
if I am an actor and I had a lot of potential of acting to do in my life and my life was cut short and I didn't have the ability to, to kind of live on that legacy and I have a family, a, a strong family base around me that says, you know what? We're cool with this. We kind of would like the idea of our son or brother or, or father to live on in the movies a little bit more. And with computer animation the way it is, if the family's all okay with it and all, maybe it's okay to do. Here's the thing. Here's what else I think is going to happen. The box office and the public will determine whether this works or not. That's okay? true. I mean, if nobody goes to see this movie and nobody yeah, cares. Yeah, it sounds like it's just a stunt anyway. It does sound like a stunt. Yeah. If nobody cares, nobody goes to see it, then they won't try to do this again. But if people flock to the movie and say, look, you know, it's so great to see James Dean up on the screen again. <laughs> it's creepy, but it is you know what? Creepy. It's maybe so. We've already had several, and I think you and I even talked years ago on our show about the questions become, you know, who gets recognized for performances when these things come together. Right. We talked a lot about when we reviewed the uh, Planet of the Apes films, the newer ones. Right. All the motion capture, Andy Serkis and others. Who would get recognized or should we be recognizing those performances? My answer was yes. They're still performances, but you recognize both the actor who voiced and did the physical acting and you recognize the animators who actually made the what we see on the screen. Right. In my perfect world, you, if you have a Best Actor nomination, and if it was Andy Serkis for Caesar in uh, Planet of the Apes, up on the screen it's Andy Serkis slash and the, the lead animator. It's like these two are the performers. Right. You know? But in this situation, who do you, who, if this film, let's say, was huge and big and lots of people loved it and it got nominated for right. Best Actor or Best Supporting Actor for James Dean, <laughs> who... Do you credit the voice actor? Do you credit the animators? Do you credit James Dean post? Uh, I mean, how do you yeah, do that? Yeah, I don't know. That's just that's just weird. <laughs> it's just I will say a similar related note. I read recently where Robin Williams. I think it was like when he passed away, he signed some type of thing yeah. that said, "My likeness cannot be, cannot used, be used for, for X number of years." And so, like, I don't know. It's because he saw like swirls around that like okay sure. this kind of thing well what was it uh fred astaire or somebody did a vacuum oh, yeah. commercial yeah. dancing with a vacuum so he may have been like okay don't want <laughs> so, that to happen don't want that to happen to me i think if so, you're an actor nowadays you have to be thinking about that in terms of legacy and your likeness because you watch all the have you seen some of these deep fake videos where you're able to take somebody's actor's face yes. and put it on a, another person and how realistic it looks yeah if I'm an actor in today's society, I've got to be thinking about, okay, how do I preserve my face, my voice, all elements of my performance, and do I choose to allow them to be used if I'm no longer here? Right. And how do I make sure they're used the way I want them to be used if they are? It's an interesting question. It opens up a whole other realm that we weren't used to you know, years ago. Um, anyway, I guess where I'm coming down on this is that, okay, now that I realize that they're just getting James Dean to be an actor or just playing another random character that anybody else could play. Then I'm not in favor of that. I think that's, <laughs> right. that's not a good move. Right. If it had been playing James Dean in this role, I kind of get that. And as long as the family's supportive of it and they feel like it's not disgraceful to them, I'm okay with it. 
But I do think it opens up a bigger question about what's that going to look like in 20 years. Right. Are we going to be watching all digitally animated actors on screen? <laughs> you know, but it's so lifelike we can't tell the difference. Um, right. I don't know. Very mm. interesting. That is weird. Okay. But so I started high on a soapbox. I came down a little bit. I jumped back up and down. So I'm, I'm of two minds on it, but I, I don't, I'm not crazy about this Finding Jack film. It does sound like a big stunt. Yeah. It's like, hey, let's get a lot of attention and buzz for a little independent film we're making. So, yeah. Okay. Well, Chris, I'm done with the soapbox. Why don't we move on to our recommendations, if Sounds that's fine good. with you. This is a part of the show where Chris and I both bring up one film that we want to recognize as a film that we think is worth checking out. Maybe you haven't seen it in a while. Maybe you overlooked it when it came out. Or maybe it's just now available to watch. But the goal is to try to give you something you can watch in the, in the comfort of your own home without having to go seek out too hard in a movie theater to find it. And Chris, what is your recommendation for the episode? So I'm going to recommend a documentary that came out in 2019 called Love and Tosha. Love and... No, uh, Love and... So, so Antosha is actually Russian ah. for, uh, I believe, Anton, or it's like a term of endearment. Ah, Love and Tosha. Love ah, and Tosha. Not Love and Tosha. Correct, okay. correct. Great, I can play a little bit of the trailer here. All right. The thrill of making movies and studying characters and getting to work with people that you respect and admire is so far superior to everything else. Hey, Mark? At least for me, you know, that's how I, how I think about things. The actor Anton Yelchin is with me, and you are shooting yet again something. Yeah. It was like the first thing I consciously said to my folks: I want to do this. I want to make movies. Really So that was a little bit of the trailer. Thank you, Alan. And uh, yeah, this is a documentary, unfortunately, about the entire life and career of actor Anton Yelchin because he did die. His life was tragically cut short uh, by a freak accident. Um, What's really interesting or special about this documentary is his parents took a lot of video footage of him from even when he was a really, really young kid, like a toddler. And you see his love of performance Mm -hmm. and being in front of the camera and what a unique and thoughtful actor he really was, the variety of different roles he had. Um, He had interactions with um, different other child actors that you know, And, you know, and then he just he was a really fascinating person. And I didn't really know much about him. I mean, I knew the roles that he'd been on screen, but I'd never really seen Mm -hmm. him interviewed or anything. And he was a really fascinating person. And to have people like Chris Pine and Willem Dafoe um, talk about their inner and Anthony Hopkins talk about their interactions with him and Mm -hmm. stuff. You're like, wow, it's kind of the appreciation for. It makes me think about a similar documentary that could have been made about Heath Ledger. Probably has been made, but I haven't seen it. Whereas this is like a similar thing of somebody who was really young um, and they're gone now. And kind of what he had hoped to do, like he wanted to eventually direct and all this kind Mm. of stuff. And it's just really fascinating. Um, It's a really good film and inspiring, too, even though it is sad um, because, you know, he passed away. But his kind of journey of always learning, always trying to create, always trying to like get something out of something. It was just, it was, it was inspiring. So, uh, that's what I'll, I'll recommend is love and Tosha and you can get it on iTunes or Amazon. Sure. So 
Well, this was not planned, Chris, but both of our recommendations are eerily similar. Okay. In that they are both about a documentary okay. about an actor hmm. that uh, maybe died too young. Yours definitely more tragic and younger than mine, but still probably uh, gone uh, before their time. Gotcha. Mine is a documentary that we actually screened as part of our film society. It's called Manking Montgomery Clift. My father had always said not to trust the stories about my uncle Monty. But Monty was Montgomery Clift. There's nothing but stories. So, Chris, this documentary, um, you know, we have a lot of documentaries out about actors and their lives, especially ones from that classic Hollywood period and more, you know, uh, from the last last, uh, century. However, this one, I'll admit, when I first uh, queued it up and we, we, we screened it for our, our, our film society, I wasn't terribly interested or excited about it. I don't know any much about Montgomery Cliff as an actor. I can't even really pick out films I've seen that he was in. But uh, this documentary does something a little different and interesting that really kept my interest and, and got me thinking more about this, this, this guy's career. Uh, so classic film star, also one that came out to be gay, which was uh, something of a, a controversy at the time, or at least a source of rumors and things for the, the tabloids to gleam onto back at the time. But the, his, his story has always been viewed as someone facing tragedy and self-destruction and always being this, he was an actor that just kind of kept defeating himself with choices he was making or things he, he was doing. But his nephew uh, actually is the filmmaker here, and his nephew has decided, it's Robert Anderson Clift, decides to dive into the family archives and get to know this uncle that he never knew because I think he was born after Montgomery died to kind of explore this. And what you get is a documentary that is an odd collection of some interviews, traditional biography type documentary interviews, but you also have a collection of audio conversations on over telephone come to find out Montgomery and the director's father, the two brothers there, had an affinity for recording audio conversations a lot, <laughs> kind of in an interesting way, but you, it gives us a wealth of information that you wouldn't normally have and that you're actually hearing very open, frank, intimate discussions between Montgomery and family members. The documentary itself honestly doesn't tell you as, as much about Montgomery Clift as it tells you about the people around Montgomery Clift that were having to deal with the drama that was coming that, that seemed to be emanating from him or the mystery or the question marks. And I think what the nephew's point of the film is to say that, you know, his, his uncle wasn't really a, didn't do anything damaging. Wasn't, didn't not destructive, didn't have any problems, just someone who took their acting very, very seriously. And because some of their acting was so intense, people maybe even thought that maybe they were losing it mentally, you know, in real life. And he's saying, no, it's not the case. It's just, we are having to deal as a family with all that questions and uh, rumors and everything else around it. His father, the Montgomery Cliff's brother, actually wrote a book about Montgomery Cliff, and it came under a lot of fire from other family members because it was a little more – well, he didn't write it. He contributed to – Correct. Sorry, he contributed to a book that became a little more salacious, and it kind of rubbed the family the wrong way because they didn't like how he was helping portray Montgomery in that way. It's just fascinating to look at the family side. If you want to go in to see a top to bottom, everything about Montgomery Cliff, this isn't really the film. 
if you want to see the impact that stardom and fame can have on somebody and the people in their immediate vicinity and how the idea of rumors and hearsay and uh, uh, tabloid fodder stuff happens and, and perp- perpetuates even after someone's death, this is a pretty fascinating look at it. I just admire the film because the use of the recorded audio conversations had some very creative ways of bringing in story elements without just relying on constantly talking head, talking head, talking head. So I liked it a lot. It was very surprising to me. Again, not anything I expect something out of, but I found uh, quite a bit to enjoy about making Montgomery Clift. Uh, It is also available iTunes, Amazon, all the typical streaming services where you can buy films right now. So those are our recommendations. That is Making Montgomery Clift, and then we also have the recommendation of uh, Love and Tosha. Um, obviously, we talked about some films, Antebellum being teased out for us, Bombshell coming up here in the next month, uh, the Quest for Lowered Expectations chapter of <laughs> Star Wars. Uh, we talked a little bit also about uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, the Paris Theater in New York City reopening thanks to Netflix. And we started everything off with our split decision review of Uncut Gems. Chris, we covered a lot of ground. We have a lot of opinions we shared. If someone has some thoughts, questions, or their own opinions to share, uh, how might they do so? You can send us an email to info at themesh.tv and mention Foot Candle Films in the subject line. And yeah, give us some feedback. We'd love to hear it. might even share some of it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to mention that, even though it's a little ways out, the Foot Candle Film Festival will be returning next year from September 23rd through the 27th. So you can go ahead and mark your calendar early that you could maybe come and join us for that. Meanwhile, in the meantime, if you are a filmmaker who would like to have your film screened, you can go to uh, Foot Candle Film Festival and get some information about the festival. You can also go to Film Freeway, the website that we use to get submissions in and find Foot Candle Film Festival and submit your film there. We'd love to have it considered. Absolutely. So we're looking forward to a great uh, festival weekend next September. Still a ways off, but like Chris said, hey, now's the time. If you you or someone you know, a filmmaker that has a film to be submitting, we'd love to have it uh, considered or at least reviewed and watched uh, for consideration for next year's festival. Uh, a couple other things, too. I know that this coming next few months, we'll be helping host the Children's International Film Festival out of Catawba County here, where we help uh, moderate and put together a collection of short films from around the world for uh, school-age children, typically ages 3rd uh, grade through 7th or 8th grade. I don't remember the ages exactly that spans. <laughs> Let's say 8 through 13 or 14 sounds, sounds about good. right. Um, we put that together and actually host those screenings throughout the schools all throughout our county, all three school systems we have. So it's something we do in partnership with the Greater Hickory International Council, and we're very excited to be a part of it again this year. If you are a filmmaker that uh, has uh, access to a short film, and we're talking like less than 15-minute film, that is something that really is a good fit for ages 8 through 13, something that they can appreciate, something that's uh, – Good, uh, a good cultural f- experiment or a uh, film of interest for them. We'd love to see your submissions. Submissions are free, which is nice for that festival as opposed to the, the bigger festival. But you can also go, we'll have a link uh, shortly up on the Foot Candle Film Society website, which is footcandle.org, for information about the Children's Festival. And you can also find it on Film Freeway as well if you search for Children's International Film Festival out of Hickory. 
I forgot to mention, uh, we started this last year, but uh, we're going to continue it again this year, working with the Visitor's Writer Series at Lenore Ryan University here in Hickory, North Carolina. We are also doing a script writing competition as well. So filmmaker being someone who's actually generating a film of media that you would see up on a movie screen, but also if you are doing the early work of writing the script and <laughs> you want to get some uh, notoriety in or a contest or something for that, you can. So script writing or, you know, films, either one, we're both accepting submissions for that. So pretty much if you are making or writing a film, we've got you covered. Yes. We want to, we want to see your work. Please uh, check out the different ways you could submit your films or scripts for consideration in our different festivals there. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up the episode. So for Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV, this is Alan Jackson and Chris Fry saying thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. See you in the ticket line. Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.